Los Angeles is looking for healing in the wake of these shocking racist remarks made by three members of the Los Angeles City Council, three Latino members of the Los Angeles City Council. I- I'm shocked. Who, who, who could have known that Latinos also could be racist? So it's a time for healing. And I want to bring Los Angeles together, whether you're a part of Los Angeles, the actual city, or you're just a, a spiritual Los Angelino. Ted was white. This question goes for the both of you. The next mayor of Los Angeles will be either an African-American woman or a white man. I'm Italian. Italian-American. <laughs> Thank you. That's Latin. Thank you. I'm going to put you on the spot, Bream, and I want a yes or no. Okay. Are Italians white? There is a big internet argument over this. That is not a yes or no. <laughs> there are people, but first, here's the thing, too. Like, so I, I go down a rabbit hole because there's this big fight over whether Italians are Latin and the difference between Latin and Latino. And I'm like, oh my gosh, there's so much nuance here yeah, that I'm going to get my trouble, so much trouble no matter what I say. But the way that she framed the question, I don't think was fair because she's yeah, like, yeah, that's not, that's a, a setup. minority woman or a white guy. And you know, you hate white guys, <laughs> know, so you can't was, vote for him. That was not a fair and balanced moderator right there. No, I agree. Okay. First up, there are a lot of places to find love, the gym, the Okay, let's see if they uh, can check change in the definition with, uh, of Tucker Carlson here, and uh, then we'll get on to what's going on in Los Angeles. Let's, let's see if uh, Tucker is bringing anything good. Good evening, and welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. John Fetterman is a trust fund kid. He took money from his parents deep into middle age when he decided finally what he would like to do with the rest of his life, which is to be the U.S. Senator from Pennsylvania. The problem is fate intervened and he can now no longer speak. He had a bad stroke and we feel bad about that. Everyone does. But because of that stroke, Fetterman now needs electronic assistance in order to communicate with other people. He can't talk on his own. It's not a right-wing conspiracy theory. It's not QAnon. It's real. In fact, it's so real, his campaign concedes that it's real. That it's true. Fetterman uses a software program to understand the words of those around him and to formulate his responses to those words. In other words, to talk. Now, to be perfectly clear, this software is not a hearing aid. Fetterman doesn't need a hearing aid because he isn't deaf. He's not hearing impaired. Instead, this program takes words and then rearranges them into language that John Fetterman can understand because his brain can no longer do that for him. Now, that's sad. For transhumanists, though, it is thrilling. This is an amazing moment. This is Neil Armstrong on the moon. Here you have one of the most famous politicians in the country merging with a computer. This is the future they imagine. They're thrilled by it. But for everyone else, for the voters of Pennsylvania, for example, it does raise some obvious questions. For example, where exactly does the software end and John Fetterman's consciousness begin? We don't know. We can't know. But it's obvious that Pennsylvania could very well be sending a computer program to the U.S. Senate, where inevitably it will be hacked. Yesterday, MSNBC sat down with John Fetterman and his thinking machine to assess where the man ends and the machine begins. And the initial impressions were not at all encouraging. Uh, 
we had a monitor set up so that he could read my questions because he still has lingering auditory processing issues as a result of the stroke, which means he has a hard time understanding what he's hearing. Now, once he reads the question, he's able to understand. You'll hear he also still has some uh, problems, some challenges with speech. And I'll say, Katie, that just in some of the small talk prior to uh, the interview before the closed captioning was up and running, it did seem that uh, he had a hard time understanding our, our conversations. Well, good for her for admitting that. That's a rival channel. Don't watch a lot of MSNBC, but she should tell viewers that, and she did. And what she just told you is that before the machine was turned on, John Fetterman could not understand human language, not even small talk. But once the machine was plugged in, he sounded, or the machine sounded, nearly human. But don't worry. Everything's going to be fine in the Senate as long as there's not a power outage. It's not like the electricity ever goes down in this country. We definitely have enough renewables to keep John Fetterman voting the right way for the next six years. Better build some more wind farms. That's the plan. But once again, to the credit of the MSNBC reporter, she did ask a follow-up. How do we know your thinking machine isn't going to break, John Fetterman? Can we see a doctor's report on this? Here's how that exchange went. Can voters trust that you will be able to do this job on day one? Yeah, of, of course. So you say you're on the road to full recovery, but right now voters really have to take your word for it. We've asked for your medical records. We've asked to have a conversation with someone from your medical team to interview your physician. You've declined those requests. Why? Well, I, I feel like we have been very transparent in a lot of different ways when our doctor has already given a letter saying that I'm able to serve and to, to be uh, running. I mean, respectfully, that letter from your physician, that was six months ago. Don't voters deserve to know your status now? Being on in front of thousands and thousands of, of people and having interviews and getting around all across Pennsylvania, that gives everybody and the voters decide, you know, if they think that it's, it's really the issue. So he's reading that off a screen. And by the way, we're taking him at his word that there's not a staffer backstage typing out the answers because he himself can't formulate them. Now, again, you can feel deeply sympathetic to John Fetterman. That's sad to watch. But this is a guy who wants to run the federal government in a body of 100, the most powerful legislative body in the world. And he wants to be a member of it. So over at CBS, reporter Ed O'Keefe asked the obvious question, quote, will Pennsylvanians be comfortable with someone representing them who had to conduct a TV interview this way? Now, that's a mild way to put it, but it's certainly a fair observation. The guy's reading his answers off a screen with the reporter three feet away. That's the definition of impairment. And again, this is a very serious job. But others in the media scoffed at the idea that was a problem at all. In fact, Far from being a problem, it was an asset. Because if the equity agenda means anything, it means that incompetent people ought to be in charge. That's equity. As New York City Councilwoman Rita Joseph put it, questions about Fetterman's profound brain damage are, quote, incredibly ableist. Ableist. We desperately need more diversity in elected office, and that includes people with speech impediments. Well, we desperately need that. That is absolutely right. But actually, we're not talking about a speech impediment. She's telling us 
He's got a stutter, just like Joe Biden. Remember when they told you that Joe Biden's dementia was just a stutter? <laughs> but of course, a speech impediment would not prevent Fetterman or Biden from understanding other people's speech. Huh. Investigative reporter Hunter Walker, who writes for Rolling Stone in The New Yorker, answered that question with a question of his own. Hmm. Quote, would they treat a deaf person like this for needing assistance? Oh, so if you have questions about John Fetterman, you hate the deaf. You're a hearingist, bigot. We're going to close down your bank account at J.P. Morgan, ableist. But again, it's not really relevant to the Senate race in Pennsylvania because, once again, John Fetterman doesn't have hearing problems. He's not deaf. This isn't deafness. This is brain damage. So the independents, Eric Michael Garcia, tried to tie up that loose end, and he used an analogy to do it. That's how really smart people talk. How is this any different, he wrote, from Tammy Duckworth or Madison Cawthorn needing a wheelchair? Oh, so John Fetterman being unable to talk without reading it off a screen, either from the software or from one of his staffers backstage, is exactly the same as being wounded in defense of your own country. It's a war injury. <laughs> and then John Fetterman's wife, who came into this country as an illegal alien, by the way, wondered the same thing. And we're quoting, truly appalling. Have these journalists never heard of the Americans with Disabilities Act? Really curious to learn how they feel about wheelchairs and glasses. End quote. Really? So your questions about John Fetterman's mental health, the acuity of his brain, his ability to talk and listen and reason, use his higher faculties, those questions are banned by the Americans with Disabilities Act because he's not just an incompetent guy trying to take over the country. No, he's disabled. Over at Vox, Ian Milheiser said he knows exactly how Fetterman's bigoted critics view people with eyeglasses. Dr. Cameron Rouge, quote, is it the position of NBC News that a senator with glasses cannot be trusted in office because they use assistive technology to accommodate their disability? <laughs> It's so unbelievable. Not only can you not ask questions about the guy you're supposed to vote for and whether he can actually represent you in the United States Senate, you're not allowed. He's fine. And by the way, the fact he's not fine is the reason to vote for him. So they're hitting you for both sides. <laughs> vote for him because he's so profoundly disabled and we don't have enough of those in the Senate. But if you know that he's profoundly disabled, you're a bigot. Woo! They got you coming and going. Have you heard this before? Does it sound kind of familiar where they take someone with an obvious impairment and then they use him to accrue more power for themselves? It's not really about the disabled person. It's about them. And then if you ask questions about it, shut up, bigot. Does the term Greta Thunberg come to mind? That's the girl who's always lecturing you about global warming and how you're evil. Greta Thunberg is someone who needed help and concern from adult adults. At the age of 11, she lost 22 pounds because, according to her parents, she was so depressed about global warming that she couldn't eat. And then she was diagnosed with a whole suite of very serious problems, OCD, mutism, Asperger's. Very, very sad, actually. But the people around Greta Thunberg and the people who used Greta Thunberg didn't see this as sad at all. They saw it as an advantage for them because Greta Thunberg could be used Okay, David, uh, how are you, sir? Good to see you. Hey, Brokashim. Thanks, Mayak. Thanks, Mayak. Uh, how, are, how are your first two days of Sukkot? 
Baruch Hashem, you know, I, I didn't muster up the courage to uh, to go to shul, but I, you know, I got, uh, yeah, I, I did all the prayers. I, I didn't actually build a sukkah. I got my lula of an esrog. I even spent a hundred bucks, got a good one. Um, so, uh, you know, God forbid, kind of slacking on my Judaism. I'm not not exactly sure. I just couldn't muster this, the courage to uh, go to shul. I hadn't seen people for years. And uh, couldn't bring myself to do it. It's kind of weird. Yeah, I mean, it's weird from the outside, but I'm sure it makes perfect sense from from the inside because we we all fall into habits. For example, you can get a cold, and you can just fall into the habit of speaking in that certain nasally way that that blocked up, stuffed up way that people get when they have a cold. So anything very quickly spirals, like spirals in a positive sense. If you for example, take up a, a positive exercise routine or a positive diet or uh, you start acting on New Year's resolutions or whatever. But uh, isolation is its own spiral. And so once you kind of dropped out of the community, every day that you don't go back, it makes it that much harder to go back. Is that is that fair? Yeah, and I, I wasn't really part of the community. You're just, your synagogue, it was part of my worship my jewish experience that i went to synagogue like i know the people there um i mean to some extent we're part of the community we live in the same neighborhood but uh you know i i basically only saw them in synagogue and uh you were had friendly cordial relations with a bunch of people but uh the relationship didn't extend outside of the synagogue and so covid19 i stopped going to synagogue and so i wasn't really part of the community at all so now like you know like two years I haven't been to shul and, and I get like, uh, you know, stage right social anxiety. Like, Oh my God, I'm going to go to shul. I'm going to, you know, like see all these people. And plus like the only shul near me is a membership synagogue where I'm not a paying member and, you know, it's all politics. And I just gave myself a whole bunch of reasons. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's kind of, uh, you know, maybe I'm also going through, uh, you know, like I don't call it like a midlife crisis, identity crisis, uh, reassessing my life, what I'm trying to do with my life for the role of Orthodox Judaism. Yeah. So have you, have you come to any clarity in all this introspection? No, you know, like more confusion. I think I'm really too old to, uh, do something else. You know, like I'm, I'm pretty addicted to Judaism and then, uh, you know, so it's kind of weird. Like I'm, I'm very Jewish Judaism means it's probably the single most important thing in my life. Uh, but Judaism is a communal religion. I was talking with uh, Charles about that. Uh, you know, E. Michael Jones had, I think, said about Charles Moskowitz to this guy Rizzoli uh, that there is no Protestant approach to Judaism. I mean, we've talked about that. So, uh, like, I'm I've been doing a Protestant approach to Judaism, and I'll, I'll, I'll probably continue doing that to the rest of my life. Uh, but, you know, the reality is, uh, you know, Judaism, uh, you can't legitimate a Protestant approach. It's a communal religion, and you're either part of the community or not. So talk to me more. What's a Protestant approach to Judaism? Personal relationship with God. You know, yeah, I like Breslov, and he's pointed us, and uh, you're trying to talk to God in your own words. But uh, uh, Judaism is not about your private relationship with God. Although there's definitely aspects in Hasidus and Jewish philosophy and theology about having a very good 
personal relationship with God, uh, but it's a communal religion. And, uh, you know, there's requirements like uh, the minion, the prayer service that require uh, part of the community, the literature. Um, you know, like we all don't stand alone on Judgment Day. We stand together on Judgment Day. You know, various issues like, you know, Israel, Zionism, fighting anti-Semitism, um, you know, like Iran, what's good for the Jews. And uh, yeah, I think all the efforts to, uh, you mean, maybe you would be able to word it better than me, but uh, you know, it's very, you can't really be an individual Jew uh, because, you know, like it's a communal religion. And so even if it's like you meet non-Jews and like, oh, you're Jewish, occasionally people ask you questions about Jewish theology, but they're more likely to ask you about your relationship to the Jewish community or other Jews. And because you know, I've, I've been a Jew most of my life in communal affairs, I still know a lot of people. I'm still connected on uh, social media. Maybe it's also being an old bachelor that, uh, you know, as my age increases, like over 40, um, a lot of even the single stuff kind of gives up on you. And, uh, you know, people are already at the age where they're marrying their kids off, have grandkids. And, you know, I mean, you've talked about it before. You still are part of the community. But uh, in many ways, the you know, Judaism is built upon the family unit structure and the education of the kids and, uh, you know, uh, family events, simchas, uh, weddings, bar mitzvahs, circumcisions, kiddishes. And, uh, you know, it's kind of like, okay, pass me by. Uh, it didn't work out for whatever reason. And so I'm just trying to reassess, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe call it a midlife crisis. Right. And uh, Judaism is definitely a communal religion, but there have been, uh, you know, many individuals in Judaism who have preferred to isolate themselves. There have been Hasidic Rebbe's who've chosen to largely isolate themselves. Uh, Rebbe Nachman. All right, he preferred to isolate himself for, for many, many years. There are rabbis in the Talmud who chose to isolate themselves. There were prophets in the, the Bible who chose to isolate themselves. So it's not like isolating yourself is without any precedent in the Jewish tradition. Yeah, I mean, the, the, yeah, they're, they're, it's inclusive on different levels. So and then, like, I, like, yeah, I won a big chess tournament this week on the Internet. I play for Israel. I still have a lot of social media connections. I'm in the engineering or, you know, possibly Detroit larger business social circles that uh, I have a role to the community. Um, but, uh, you know, to some extent, it's, uh, you know, it's, I mean, maybe you, know, you as a convert, I think just being an old bachelor in and of itself, because, you know, e even the difference between me and you that I'm not a convert, I'm just a Balchuva, but I don't have really any familial relationships in the local synagogues. So, you know, at a certain point, um, yeah, I'm just an isolated Jew and the Jewish community is still relatively welcoming. I assume if I walked into any synagogue or event that uh, the majority of the people would be relatively accepting. And, you know, it's known that you should be, you know, nice and uh, encouraging to people. Uh, but, uh, so it might it might just be more personal, you know, just thinking that, uh, you know, I'm getting old. I, I got to uh, accomplish something with my life and what I'm doing uh, isn't really going anywhere. And, 
you know, my role in the Jewish community isn't really going anywhere. Um, you know, maybe certain failures, like with the liberal synagogue down, downtown, that they went a different direction. And uh, even like Chabad or, or the various things, like uh, it's just, uh, I wouldn't say I'm depressed, like we said last time we spoke, that I have a pretty baseline uh, level of kind of like minor towards depressive. So I don't feel like I'm more depressed than normal. I just, uh, it, it was kind of weird. I couldn't uh, bring myself to go to synagogue. Yeah, I appreciate your honesty. I think people can tell how how honest you're being. There's no artifice. There's no pretense here. There's no play acting. There's no performance. You're talking about things that you're struggling with, and it, it's so real that it, that it comes across and, and is is compelling to to the, to the viewer because everybody has things that they struggle over. Many people struggling over their identity. Uh, many people are struggling coming out of COVID and how much they want to integrate a more social life. Once again, many people are questioning their commitments, questioning the direction of their life, or what gives their life meaning. I think we're all looking for a place to shine. We're all looking for a place to contribute. We we want a home, not just online, but but in the real world. And so I think you're you're speaking to these universal issues. Now I got into an interesting conversation over the the holidays about the decline of organized religion in America in particular. And so several Jews I was talking to were were sad about the decline of organized religion. But uh, one of them made the point that uh, many Orthodox Jews are m more religious than ever. And, and that's true. There's more Torah study going on now, more intensely, with, with more people than ever before in Jewish history. But what, what I notice, even if there are many areas where Orthodox Jews are more observant than ever before, they are still living in a world that is steadily reducing the amount of, of magic and enchantment and mystery and, and sense of the transcendent. So we still live in a highly rationalized world, a highly economical world where people move around for jobs, where more and more of what happens in life is thought to be explained by science rather than theology or philosophy or mysticism, right? So my friend Ricardo is in the chat, and he understands much of the world through the, the concept of demons, which is a traditional way of understanding the world, that there are demons out there, there are angels out there, there are forces of good and evil, that there are sacred spaces and sacred forces and demonic forces, and they're doing battle. And so Ricardo has a more medieval view than I do, because I, I don't believe in demons, but I have a far more medieval view than your your regular secularist, because I, I do believe in forces of good and evil. I, I do believe in in God. I do believe in the transcendent. I do believe in the magical and, and and sacred spaces. And as science becomes more and more the thing that's put on a pedestal and is used to explain what's happening, that's even affecting religious people. So if there's there was an earthquake that that rolled through while I'm carrying on a conversation with Orthodox Jews, they would not turn to God as the primary explanation. They would say, look, there, there are tectonic plates, and this plate is rubbing up against this plate, and that's why we had an earthquake. So more, more of life is being explained through ostensibly scientific reasons, and less and less of life is being explained by reference to God. So even though many Orthodox Jews may be even increasing their level of observance, they're still living in a steadily less enchanted, less transcendent, you know, less religious, less God-centered 
world and the people i was talking to understood my point and they they agreed with me do you, do you have any thoughts yeah and i, I think and i watched your Cato godfrey interview and i thought you were your really peak uh peak talking points uh there um and you know you're mentioning that you know there is still activity in church or the levels of the orthodoxy and you're the certain level of the community where you're raising families together and the Jewish community puts a substantial amount of uh, emphasis, maybe even greater than half of uh, the Jewish community's emphasis is on educating the next generation, um, you know, keeping kids on the derrick and the path and, uh, um, you know, like all the holidays, things are, are geared towards kids in the community, even the liberal synagogue, like, you know, they basically went with, the handful of like young parents and tried to create a uh, you know, little community about, uh, you know, just the, of the handful of uh, Jews in Detroit with kids. And, uh, you know, so now it's like every other week is like a tat Shabbos and uh, events geared towards bringing uh, young couples with their uh, children together. And, uh, you know, I think Kato's point on the church is most churches lack that, although there are, definitely a lot of churches that do have that strong family unit. And then, you know, it's probably my own personal failure, struggle with identity, that if I was in the Orthodox community and the problem I see, like the, the main things, you know, anti-Semitism, BDS, um, various issues where the Jewish community doesn't really train the children for the struggles that are present today in the university level, like my father always, you know, mentioned the decline of uh, Jewish medical stu school students where the percentage of, uh, you know, Jews in medical schools uh, keeps on decreasing. The academic uh, um, achievement level of Jews has been decreasing for you know, multiple factors. And although the modern Orthodox community, there's always very competitive people or, you know, still relatively doing quite well, there's, you know, constantly people graduating from medical schools or, you know, going to Harvard. Uh, there's issues facing the community that the community is having different, a very difficult time preparing their children to. Uh, you know, if it's off the derrick, if it's the Orthodox people and the questions like, you know, we were talking about with the, you know, Haredi and education, how much secular education to give. And then uh, the liberalization of America, where you know, are we full gung-ho multiculturalism and, and leftism or trying to have some sort of uh, conservative values. And then how do you have that where you're, you know, where we live largely in African-American multicultural, uh, the center of uh, the bluest parts of, uh, of America. So it's a big challenge. And if I was a father in the community, it'd probably be a huge challenge. Um, you know, like I wasn't competitive enough. Like I would have had to have been really rich and a super dad that my kids now would be like going to good universities, trying to get them into medical schools. I'd have to be making hundreds of thousands of dollars, um, you know, to pay for their tuition. And I'd be struggling with, you know, I, I, I probably would have had to be a very strong Zionist and, and uh, you know, fighting anti-Semitism and the modern Orthodox uh, party line. And uh, it would have been extremely difficult to, uh, to have met those challenges that, uh, you know, you imagine if you were a father right now 
and you were able to tow the modern Orthodox party line and you would be forced to make hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to pay for your kid's education and then trying to, you know, deal with your kids and uh, the culture wars that are currently brewing. Yeah. So I was just listening to Tucker Carlson's monologue about John Fetterman, the Democrat running for U.S. Senate in Pennsylvania, how he had a stroke about six months ago. He's still severely disabled. Is it okay to discriminate against the disabled, or at least to take that into consideration when when casting your vote? And then it, it made me think about the Torah, because priests with defects explicitly are not allowed to serve in the holy temple, according to the Torah. So we're talking Leviticus chapter 21. No nobody who has a physical blemish can draw near to the holy place in the temple to offer bread in the presence of God. No one who is blind, no one who is lame, no one who has a mutilated face or a limb that's too long, no one who's a hunchback or a dwarf or a man with a defect in his sight or an itching disease or scabs or crushed testicles can draw close to the to God in, in the temple. And so the the point is you're not allowed to also offer animals for sacrifice that are blind or disabled or mutilated or have a discharge or an itch because we have this human tendency to offer to God what we really don't want anyway. So we would rather take those who are disabled or unpleasant to look at and perhaps uh, hide them away. And now here we've got the Torah saying priests who are disabled or unpleasant to look at Right, the, the defective one, right? Maybe they shouldn't be leading the religious services in the holy temple. So, any any thoughts on th- this piece of Torah and how it might apply to wider society? Yeah, I'm not sure if it's apt comparison because to compare temple service to politics, where it's something like for God and has to be done perfect, as opposed to politics, which is uh not holy and i'm not sure if there's a parallel to like being a judge or administering public uh, needs in these uh, ritualistic demands because uh you know the concept of ritualistic purity or ritualistic uh, perfection just like my lula van Estrog, you know i had to spend a hundred dollars for uh you know a palm and a citron and uh you know one perfection that doesn't have any blemishes that's for a ritual and there's a certain belief pattern so i'm not sure if you could draw that parallel to uh politics and if you think the talmudic requirements for a judge i don't think it includes those things correct correct but it doesn't bother me that uh the torah includes these discriminatory laws against you know, who cannot serve in the in the temple. So obviously, uh, someone who's not born a Kohen can't convert to being a Kohen, right? So a Kohen refers to the, the priests who served in the ancient temple. So there's a hereditary element in Judaism that you can't, you know, overcome with, with money. And there are all sorts of qualifications and disqualifications for, for service in in the Jewish temple and other aspects of, of Jewish law. So here are some of the physical disqualifications to serve as a Kohen, as a priest in the temple. Blindness, lameness, uh, disproportionate limbs, a crippled foot or hand, cataracts, 
blindness, certain types of boils, and, and crushed testicles. So a cohane with any of these imperfections is deemed unfit for service. However, if it is a correctable imperfection, he can become re-eligible for service once the defect is corrected. Although he is unable to serve publicly, he is permitted to eat of the holy food. And Kohanim, Jewish priests with these blemishes, are allowed to perform work in the temple outside of the sacrificial service itself. So there are other forms of defilement that would prohibit a priest from serving in the temple, such as contact with the dead, uh, exposure to that which is unclean. A Jewish priest may not marry a divorcee, a prostitute, or a convert. All right. Uh, certainly cannot marry a woman who has committed adultery, has been involved in incest, or has had relations with a non-Jew, or is the child of two converts. So a born Jewish woman who has had premarital relations may marry a Kohen only if all of her partners were Jewish. So any any thoughts on all these restrictions, David? Yeah, I'm I'm wondering if it's a, I mean, at least in the comparison, like a category error, if this is unique to man and God as opposed to man and fellow man, and the reason behind this doesn't have to do with perception or man and fellow man, um, but saying like, these are rituals, it has to do with God, and it has to be done perfect to work. And for something political or man between man, uh, it wouldn't be significant. I mean, the point isn't that uh, the Kohen uh, you know, has a blemish and therefore um, the perception or it's just that it's not going to work because you know, it's for God and it has to be perfect or the ritual won't work. So, I mean, it, it is interesting, these these notes. And, uh, yeah, I think generally Judaism has some levels of being very discriminatory and then other levels of, you know, anti-discriminatory. And, uh, you know, certainly the temple ritual and the various things are, are discriminatory, but uh, it's ritualistic in that manner that, uh, you know, the point is, that they're going to do a ritual and the ritual needs to work. And then, you know, the Kohanim, um, you know, generally that's secluded. It's, uh, you know, just the Kohanim in the temple, the Israelites don't actually see, uh, you know, what happens. And then you, and you see the other Kohanim get the benefit. They still get the, the taxes. They still get to eat from um, the sacrifice. They just can't, uh, you know, perform the duty of the sacrifice. So I, th I think you have elements of uh, you know the nobody gets left behind part of Judaism that a lot of non-Jews find uh, beautiful with this level of elitism or um, superiority. But as I said, like, is it a category area to compare that to some uh, practical form of governments or politics when this is specific to rituals? Well, I, I think the point is that uh, if you are comfortable with Judaism, you're comfortable with many forms of discrimination. Obviously, there are certain forms of discrimination that you'll find appalling, but the whole basis of Judaism is discriminating between Jew and non-Jew, between holy and secular time, between that which is permitted and that which is forbidden, between between the Sabbath and the other days of the week. So, the, You clearly define boundaries. Mm -hmm. Just like, you're a convert, you're, you're not a Kohen, this is not you, you'll never be able to do this. It's a clear boundary that you're never going to cross for the rest of your life. Just accept it. 
Right. And so it, the secularism, which is like, you know, like, no, you can't have boundaries like that. So it doesn't bother me if other people use various forms of discrimination. Now, I'm sure there are forms of discrimination that bother me. But if someone decides not to elect somebody to the U.S. Senate because they can't speak and think clearly as a result of having a stroke, I don't think we have to worry about, you know, that that kind of vote being discrimination against the crippled. Obviously, the National Football League is not going to employ players who are crippled and the the California state bar is the most difficult state bar in the United States of America. Obviously, you have to be very high IQ and very diligent to pass the California state bar and become a lawyer in in California. So that's going to be discriminatory against people who aren't disciplined and, and aren't smart. So this, this basic fact of life, that life is frequently discriminating, I think someone with a traditional outlook, including a traditional Jewish outlook, is going to be much more at ease with that than the secular liberal who believes that people are basically good and who has an allergic reaction to the word discrimination. Yeah, and we could relate to what we're talking about, you know, the difficulties of parenting and, you know, as, you know, single Orthodox Jews that don't have to worry about the struggles that, uh, you, know, you know, most Orthodox parents would be going through and, and you know, would our children be ill-prepared for the world and what approach would we take so i mean the u.s is kind of completely deteriorated into clown world you know the origins are you know we could debate or talk at length of the origins of it but uh you know the biden presidency trump race realism uh, various things that uh you know, the truth has slipped away we've had these narratives that have been pushed and accepted that are clearly not true and you're you know it's like you're not allowed to say the truth and so you know that we've reached this situation where these kind of blatant things that everybody knows are unspeakable is you know god forbid it's you know we're in america and to see our own demise and uh, bad predicament is uh you know very troubling but uh you know maybe you know laughter people try to make light of it uh, but but yeah, I mean it's very troubling to see that this is the current situation we're in in uh, American politics, where uh, you know just clown world or however you describe it, where uh, the truth has been lost and uh, certain things that are just obvious to everybody can't be said because we've been uh, pushing these narratives that are clearly not true for uh, you, you know a whole bunch of reasons. So uh, Kanye West was at a fashion show wearing White Lives Matter t-shirt shirts along with uh, Candace Owens, and then he later tweeted that he was going DEFCON three against the Jews. So DEFCON is a defensive position; it's not an offensive position. But anyway, Kanye West ended up getting uh, banned from various forms of social media, such as Instagram and and Twitter, because of his his outbursts. And he says. Uh, I can't be anti-Semitic because black people are actually Jewish. You guys have toyed with me and tried to blackball anyone who opposes your agenda. <laughs> so uh, Kanye West is kind of off off the uh, off the reservation. Uh, did you pay any attention to Kanye West? Yeah, I've been following the story. I think I was in Stony Brook University when Kanye West first had songs coming out, and some were all right. Um, I never found him that compelling or that he was a Republican 
I thought your points on Cato Gottfried, where you're kind of arguing about abortion and uh, you know the concept of uh, African American abortions, or, or why uh, Republicans use certain talking points, is it because they're racist or they're less racist than the uh, the left? That uh, there's certain dynamics, and you know if you're talking about the LA politics, the elections coming up, elections are about winning. And so when it comes to elections, there's the general conservatism, how I want to live my life, who I want to associate with. Like if you're an Orthodox Jew, you say, well, you know, I just want lower taxes and I want to be able to be around my community in America to be set up in a way that uh, allows me to, me and my community to uh, get ahead and have a safe society. Uh, But then elections come, you got to win and you win by building coalitions and coalitions are very weak, weakly held together, uh, mostly by lies, propaganda, and uh, false promises. So, you know, now with the elections coming up, you, you know, Kanye West is important to the right-wing coalition in certain ways. Um, you know, so these statements into the left, the you know, the, you know, the so what hypocrisy of anti-Semitism on the left, where uh, you know, God forbid a lot of anti-Semitism on the left is, uh, you know, swept under the rug and highlighted from like white nationalists. So, you know, it's, uh, it's really the clown work, clown world and the, the web of lies and election propaganda that just, uh, comes to the forefront. Although it's also the, the level of, uh, possibly increased anti-Semitism and, uh, you know, the predicament uh, that Jews in America, uh, might be facing, uh, you know, moving forward that, uh, you know, it's just the statement of one man, but uh, he's, you know, one of the most influential people in America. He's got hundreds of millions of followers. And as a Republican, um, we're, you know, bound to make a statement, you know, kind West, you know, what, what is he, do, does he feel about the Jews? Uh, you know, should we be de- defending his free speech? Should we be, uh, you know, saying he's not anti-Semitic or are we going to, you know, draw the line or the level of, of uh, mentally ill? Like Nicholas Fuentes isn't mentally ill. Uh, Richard Spencer, you usually, it's not, Richard Spencer is not mentally ill. He's, you know, like this horrible anti-Semite that deserves to be punished is where, you know, Kanye West, though he's just mentally ill, like the John McWhorter, um, you know, has been, you know, the New York Times and the Glenn Show talking about that, where the excuse for blacks, like, oh, just like mentally, men- mental illness is, uh, you know, another dog whistle of racism. Yeah. Okay, uh, David, I'm going to move on. Uh, thanks for coming by the show. Did you, I mean, God forbid, I, I have to admit, one of the first movies, I was probably 10 years old in the in the mid-80s, saw was Kit in the Natividad, and, and I saw oh, yeah. she died at 73, and, uh, you know, think that it was that, that old, and, uh, you know, I saw the her. I, I don't know if you were at the funeral or the eulogy, or if you fell out. And I, I saw on um, a few uh, internet databases you're listed as one of her former boyfriends. I saw in your biography you mentioned that story with the AOL. Um, but uh, I don't know if you wanted to mention there. If you want to skip that, just uh, you, you'll sign off. I, I, I will admit that uh, I think she's the first adult person. Like you know, I stayed up late after my parents went to sleep, and like. I don't know if it was HBO or some station 
and uh, I was probably 10 years old. She's the first one I saw. So yeah, I read that in your book. It was like, I know, I know that name from somewhere and, uh, and, and God forbid, you know, she passed away. Yeah. I went to interview her in something like February, 1997. And uh, we went to dinner. She was quite outgoing and she couldn't figure out how to install AOL on her computer. So she was fun. She was easy to talk to. She was. It was already in her mid forties then. Like when you, uh, you said in your book, like you also like that movie, uh, um, Training Day or some of the eighties movie that she was in one of the most oh, popular. Oh yeah, yeah. My, my tutor. She was in my tutor, which was like a well, seminal movie when I was and... in my teens. But, but she was already in her mid forties when you met her. Yeah, I think she was close to 50 and she was diagnosed with cancer and she had her, her breasts removed, a double mastectomy, uh, a couple of years after I, I met her. But, so that's just a story in your book. You weren't following her funeral or, or you haven't uh, followed any, any uh, contact. And, and, and is that accurate? Did you know that you're listed as one of her former boyfriends? On I, I, just, uh, I just looked it up when you when you mentioned it. So we, we just had the, the one evening together and uh, that was it. But she was she was very friendly, very outgoing. She was an easy person to talk to and like very, very generous, very hospitable. And uh, it's one of those rare occasions where I went to interview someone and ended up hooking up with her. That, that doesn't happen uh, that often. But she was, you know, far more experienced sexually experienced that I was. She she wanted to go to all sorts of places that I didn't want to go to. I was like very much the, you know, the the virgin. She was very much the Chad. Like she was, you know, much more experienced in this, in this realm. Like she would have uh, eaten me for dinner. I was you know a little bit grateful to get out of there alive. I saw the thing from your blog, like God forbid, it, it, it looked like it was on your own blog. It said that you were like a virgin and like the granny, uh, and I, I guess that was that Stephen Saylor who wrote that. It didn't make any sense. Oh, it was I, just I a, a satirical. It it was someone's satirical perspective on my evening with Kit and Natividad. And then the Dennis Prager didn't like congratulate you on that. No, definitely not. Yeah. Okay. I was I was confused. And, <laughs> yeah, and it was I satire. That. Yeah. I looked that up, and I saw you were also quoted on like some of these sites for her bio. That uh, like you're one of the sources for some of her biographical information but uh yeah i mean god forbid god bless her and uh you know tough to know but uh yeah i, I thought that was uh interesting and, and you know how time flies 73 years old yeah I, I remember she didn't really want to give me much of an interview she just wanted to chat and she'd just like give me previous interviews that she'd done she said hey quote quote from these she, she didn't want to go through the honor or the the labor of, of being being interviewed so we just uh sat around and talked for a couple of hours. Okay, Duva, good to chat with you, man. Take care. Yeah, thanks a lot. Take care. Okay. Hugs, man. Hugs, man. Bye-bye. Okay, here's what's going on in Los Politics Angeles. Lead. The president of the Los Angeles City Council has resigned that position, the presidency, following the release of a secretly recorded conversation during which she used a vile racist slur to refer to the child of a fellow council member. This happened in a conversation. About okay, so this racist slur was monkey. I mean, I was called a monkey countless times growing up. Do I look like I was traumatized because people called me a monkey? This idea that people are traumatized and, and weeping and that L.A. is convulsed by this leaked recording of a private conversation just is absurd. Like, If any of us had our private conversations made public, 
they would be uncouth, right? None of us are perfectly gentlemanly in all of our private conversations. That's why there is an arena of, of the private. So this has made such a big deal. And it's being directed with these top-down terms of like racist, bigoted, sexist, homophobic. Again, just shows you how empty these concepts are. There's, there's no reality such as racism. And that this Latino councilwoman called a black child a monkey is not in and of itself racist if there even was such a thing as racism because I'm white child, right? 99% pure Bavarian phenotype, right? I was called a monkey all the time. My, my stepmother called me a monkey. Uh, a monkey is a very common description of energetic young kids. And to be in uproar over this just shows how empty people's lives are. I mean, if we were dealing with killer COVID, such as the type of COVID we had in 2020 and 2021, I don't think we would be as aroused by what's going on here with these L.A. City Council about members. About redistricting and the possible impact on communities of color. CNN's Nick Watt reports on the growing fallout from these remarks as calls intensify for her to step down from the council altogether. Communities of color. I mean, this woman is pretty white. Many Latinos uh, look as white as anyone else, and yet they are lumped in with communities of color. How stupid is this? Mike Bonin is an L.A. City council member and father to a young black son. Last year, they went to an MLK Day parade. Right. So you're a gay dude. You marry another man and you adopt a little black child. All right. Why did you expect people to react to that? You just thought they'd just only celebrate that. Right. He is deliberately, you know, challenging traditional mores, and he expected that no one would ever remark on it. City Council President Nuri Martinez had some issues. It's like black and brown on this float, and then there's this, this white guy with this little black kid who's misbehaved. The kid is bouncing off the effing walls on the float, practically tipping it over. There's nothing you can do to control him. Translation little monkey they're raising him like a little white kid which i was like this kid is a beat down like yeah so <laughs> when she says raising like a white kid she means he's not getting beaten down so she understands that probably white parents now are more reluctant to beat down their kids than the children of, of other races and, and and this is this is supposed to be a big deal this is supposed to be a, a trauma let me, let me take him around the corner and then I'll bring him back. Bonin tweeted that Martinez attacked our son with horrific racist slurs and talked about her desire. That's ludicrous. I mean, which one of us has not said something like, I, you know, I'd like to beat someone down, right? I, I want to kill someone. I want to murder someone. Uh, it doesn't mean literally. It just uh, It's just one of those things that people toss off in, in private. Now, if someone's talking in private about how I'm gathering guns and I'm going to go to such and such an institution and start shooting people, right, that's a whole new level of specificity and a new level of threat. But to, to say we were appalled, angry, and absolutely disgusted that Nuri Martinez attacked our son with horrific racist slurs and talked about her desire to physically harm him. It's vile, abhorrent, and utterly disgraceful. No, you are vile, you're abhorrent, you're utterly disgraceful to make such a, a big deal of this. If your child is being disruptive, how do you expect other people to react to you? 
attacker to physically harm him. It's vile, abhorrent, and utterly disgraceful. There were protests at her house. Today, she resigned as council president. She issued this apology. Hate in America. All right, this is this is the the CNN subtitle. Hate in America. This this audio is incredibly mild. This is this is nothing. You should hear what my friends say. <laughs> no, I mean to, to call this hate in America. Where's the hate? Right, saying that someone's a little monkey is not hateful. Saying that a disruptive kid you want to spank or beat that kid that that's not hateful. That's just a normal human reflex. Right. It's just written into human DNA is we don't care much about outgroups, right? Now, you can make outgroup those people who are ignorant and bigoted and prejudiced. You can make them Republicans or conservatives, right? But we have a human need for outgroups to define ourselves against, right? We, we have a human need to put down other people and to think that our group is superior, whether our group is religious or racial or educational or, or professional, Right, this is an inextricable part of being human. You can never erase it. Now, ideally, I try to conduct myself as though what I'm saying, what I'm doing, if it showed up on the front page of the New York Times, that uh, it wouldn't be a a disaster such as this. But to to be human, right, is to share some nasty parts of you. The human being is filled with nastiness. This enlightenment idea that people are just born basically good. And that if anyone does anything wrong, that there must be you know something wrong with society to have caused it is ridiculous. Uh, Dennis Prager is right. The opposite is more true. You know, we are born disgusting and society tends to make us better. In a moment of intense frustration and anger, I let the situation get the best of me and I hold myself accountable for these comments. For that, I am sorry. Recorded nearly a year ago, the audio was posted anonymously on Reddit, first reported by the Los Angeles Times. Those present were, reports the paper, all Democrats, all Hispanic. Among them, Labour leader Ron Herrera. He's tweeted, there is no justification and no excuse for the vile remarks made in that room, period. And I didn't stand. There are no vile remarks, right? They haven't shown me any example of, of vile remarks or racist offensive these are non-existent magical made-up moral categories step up to stop them he did not and when and, and how do you imagine life would be if you went around stopping people who are making you know vile racist offensive prejudiced bigoted remarks uh, you wouldn't have a very happy life you wouldn't be getting along with other people very well nobody would want you around Martinez described Bonin's son as an accessory, according to the paper. That's not a ludicrous designation, all right? Plenty of parents have kids who essentially function as accessories. It is weird having these two gay dudes getting married and then adopting a black child, right? They, they may be wonderful parents. I don't know, but it's unusual when you choose to do things that are unusual you should expect people to remark on it, right? I like to date younger women. I like to date women in their 20s and 30s. And so other people remark on that, that I like to date younger women because I, I'm doing something that's a little bit taboo. And if I didn't want to put up with, with those kind of remarks, then I'd have to stop dating younger women. He joined in. It's an accessory. When we do the MRK parade. Just like, just like when, when. Either the observation is correct or it's not. 
Now, either these two gay dudes are using this black kid as an accessory, or maybe they are good parents, but either it's true or it's not. The the observation is not inherently evil. Those statues in the plantation. And then when brings her lawyard bag or the Louis Vuitton bag. That last voice, council member Kevin DeLeon. He's got big ambitions. Ran for mayor this year and a U.S. Senate seat in 18. I regret appearing to condone and even contribute to certain insensitive comments. He so do you, do you essentially want political leaders who are robots, who aren't, aren't human, right? These are four Latino politicians gathering together in what they regarded as a safe space. The most normal thing when you have four members of an in-group gathering together is to say critical and nasty things about out-groups. That's just wired into us. It doesn't inherently lead to genocide. Wrote, I fell short of the expectations we set for our leaders. Now, this audio tells us a couple of things. The first is the kind of language that some politicians are happy to use when they think nobody is listening. And also... Oh, my God. So th this reporter, wh what kind of language do you think he uses when nobody's listening? Everybody uses language that, that uh, would shock and offend other people when in, in private. So it tells us about the deep divisions amongst the left of center leaders here in Los Angeles. Yeah, so the left, the Democratic Party, are the coalition of the fringe. You've got a bunch of groups. You've got many Jews, gays, Latinos, trans, blacks. And the only thing that they have in common is a resentment against the white Christian majority. So the left-wing coalition of the fringe is inherently unstable. So the Republican Party, by and large, is the party of white Christians. And the Democratic Party, by and large, is the party of the coalition of the fringe. And the coalition of the fringe is highly unstable. By and large, Latinos do not much care for blacks. By and large, Asian Americans do not much care for, for blacks. Many blacks don't much care for blacks. And what exactly do, say, working-class Latinos and gays who work in finance have in common? Not very much, right? There's almost nothing that unites the coalition of the fringe except a shared antipathy to the white Christian core of this country. Now, Nuri Martinez is the child of Mexican immigrants, but she says this about immigrants from the Mexican state of Oaxaca. She calls them short little dark people. Well, are those immigrants short? Yes. Are they dark? Yes. Short, dark, whatever. These are descriptors. Either they're, tr they're true or they're false. Right? So just making commonsensical observations is somehow you know, horrendous. And supposedly this quote-unquote indigenous community right, of Oaxacans that live in Koreatown in Los Angeles, but they're called an indigenous community. They'd be indigenous if they were back in Oaxaca in Mexico. But if they have immigrated to America and they live in Koreatown in Los Angeles, they're no longer an indigenous community. So not, not all races, not all groups are equally tall or short, equally handsome, equally light. So making observations about reality is somehow shocking. And she says of the Cuban-American district attorney here in L.A., she says, F that guy. He's with the blacks. And either that's true or that's false, right? Is Los Angeles district attorney by and large siding with the black community as opposed to the white community? Yes, he is. So... Why, why is that so, so shocking to point out these commonsensical observations?
John. All right, Nick Watt in Los Angeles. Nick, thank you so much for that. Want to discuss now, John Avalon, CNN senior political analyst. Racist enough to resign the presidency, but not racist enough. It's like unicorn enough, right? You're talking about a made-up moral category. Racist enough to give up your whole council seat? Explain to me how tenable that is. (laughs) She's trying to walk the line. She's trying to say, look, I'm going to acknowledge it was wrong, which is more than some politicians do. Take herself out of leadership, but try to hold on to the seat and hope that she should never have apologized. Right? She should never have apologized. She didn't say anything that was worthy of an apology. Luke Glenn, hi. There were multiple protests today in downtown, including one outside of City Hall. So why were there all these protests? Because they were incentivized. They were whipped up by the media. They were whipped up by activists. They were whipped up with people with empty lives who create and propagate these made-up moral categories such as racist. During that council meeting, many say they wanted to go inside but couldn't due to capacity, so they marched through the streets calling loudly for their resignation. This is what L.A. So do you think most of these people have jobs or, or lives? I don't think so. Large groups rallied outside of L.A. City Hall during the first council meeting since racist remarks from now-resigned President Nuri Martinez were leaked. We're saying no to hate. We're saying you don't represent us. We're also questioning all of the motives on all of the votes uh, that you've done up to this point. Right, so you can question people's motives all day long, and and not even the people who possess the motives are going to have much insight into their own motives, right? Motives are difficult to untangle even for the people who are experiencing them. Such blabber and babble. Some demonstrators blocked Main Street. Many tell me there was a mix of emotions, outrage, disappointment, but also... All racists must resign, right? So... Everyone with negative views of outgroups must resign. Well, having negative views of outgroups is just inherent to human nature. By and large, nobody cares about outgroups, whether the outgroup is defined by race, by education, by social class, by religion. Right? What these people want to do is abolish being human. So, a sense of pride. I was happy, though, to see so many people from different backgrounds come out and protest against this. Get them out! Community activists traveled from neighboring counties, concerned that what happens in L.A. will set the tone for what can happen elsewhere. Yeah, community activists just uh, so concerned, right? Here's, here's an opportunity to go before TV cameras and denounce, right? So the left lives for occasions like this. The left lives to denounce racism and ignorance and, and bigotry, right? The, the right is motivated by reducing disorder and contagion, the left is always on the lookout for ignorance. We're here in unity, and that's what we should be preaching to the youth of tomorrow. Nuri Martinez said she's taking a leave of absence after she announced she's stepping down as council president. But people say that's not enough. So Nuri Martinez was always accusing other people of being racist. And all the people who are pronouncing on how evil what these council members did, you know, how bad they are, how racist they are. Everyone has things that they say in private that would look horrific if they were made public. Hell no, no. you will not stay on city council. They want her out, along with council members Kevin DeLeon and Gil Cedillo, who were also part of that meeting that was supposed to be about redistricting. Now, 
So one of the, the deeper stories here is that Latinos are no longer a reliable member of the coalition of the French. It wouldn't be surprising to find Latinos getting 35 to 40% of their votes to Republicans come this midterm. People are calling for the state attorney general to investigate. We are very concerned about the possibility that these council members and this labor leader were beyond racially insensitive, that they were seeking to disenfranchise the black vote in this city. They have never been representing our communities. People, that's why we feel that it's very strongly that we need to start voting around values and not around identity politics. Disenfranchise the black vote. So blacks are less than 9% in, in Los Angeles. All right. And yet they, they occupy about a third of the major city council seats. I mean, this idea of like disenfranchising. All right. So, so black... Blacks, they're, they're less than 9% of the LA population. They have 20% of the city council seats. All right? They have far greater clout than would be suggested by their 8.8% of the population. So white Angelinos are about 28% of the city. Asians are about 12%. And Latinos are about uh, 55% of the citizens of Los Angeles. The calls for resignation are loud and clear from various political leaders and community members, but one resident showed up to defend De Leon. He said he was sorry. He should move on and, and learn from it. Okay, Mickey Cow says he's no longer a, a character voter. So I think this is important. This is the, the education of Mickey Cow. In, uh, in helping Trump win the election, a large and illicit role. Uh, and by the way, the guy I mentioned in the regular podcast, Alperovitz, his his group, CrowdStrike, I've heard that they're the only ones who actually gathered technical information indicating that the Russians were behind the DNC email hack uh, and that the no government investigation ever did, or at least no government investigators ever did. The... Uh, and, and that's the one thing that, that I think was consequential. So if that wasn't done by the Russians, then I, I don't think they had much to do with anything. I think that email hack was consequential. But all that's a tangent. Those were the emails that were where they, they conspired against Bernie Sanders? Well, there's just a lot of shit. It was like a, it was like a story a day. It was like, uh, it was like a, an unflattering Hillary story having to do with the Clinton Foundation. It was just, it was a lot of, you know, it was like they were legit. They were kind. Most of them, not all, were were pretty legit stories. And if you recall, even though you know the media is by and large pro Hillary, they were so sure she was going to win that they were just having a field day with all the with all the new leads they got from these this email hack and all the embarrassing shit. And so there was a lot of negative publicity for Hillary that okay. came out of this. I don't. Okay. I, I, and apparently, although I guess the Russians are still the most likely suspect. Uh, apparently that has not been established with the certainty that I once believed. Anyway, it's tangent, yeah. tangent. Yeah. One one source of the progressive hawkism on foreign policy is specifically about Russia, and it has to do with them associating Russia with Donald Trump. And it's that simple. This is the way human psychology works. It's talk about his client step. before the case was over. Wait, this was Tubin's client? 
well, his his client was the was whoever was in the United States government, whoever was uh, Walsh's client, mm. and he he said things that undermined the case of whoever Walsh was representing. Uh, so, um, but you know, all all's fair in journalism if it brings out the truth. So that's fine. No, then he wrote then he wrote this this very bad book about Clinton, uh, where he said that uh, any you know conveniently any inter- interest in the sexual peccadillos of a candidate is just an attempt to, stop, to sell, sell, sell magazines and Mike right. Isikoff was, uh, was just trying to sell books when he investigated it. And the character issue tells you nothing that you need to know about a politician. Uh, it's just all bullshit, especially the character issue as reflected in sex. So we shouldn't write about adultery or any of the things that I, Jeffrey Tubin engage in. Uh, we should have so, guessed what was coming down the line when he said that Mickey, a so, big nation scandal. Uh, exactly. Uh, so, um, anyway, but it's cause he's lying. My friend Isikoff. That was, that was the point. It was also a shitty book uh, cause I was all hepped up on the Clinton Clinton's, uh, Monica Lewinsky scandal at the time, and um, he was basically saying it wasn't important, and I thought it was important, and, and in his book, he points out that, well, Bill Clinton should have killed off Hillary's healthcare initiative, but he was scared to because uh-huh. he had cheated on her so often, he, he thought this would really set her off, and that was sort of their implicit bargain, so it turns out the adultery was incredibly relevant to policy because they... Right, so Bill Clinton didn't kill off Hillary Clinton's ridiculous healthcare initiative because he was so scared of Hillary due to all his philandering. It prompted Clinton's biggest mistake as in his first uh, first two years as president. Mickey, can I ask you a question? Um, remind me, did the series of unflattering things you just said about Jeffrey Tubin begin with your denying that you have any antipathy toward him? <laughs> no, then I, I had overwhelming jealousy of his So, Oh, I uh, see. So, it's, so where does the antipathy come from if not jealousy? The antipathy come, came from me slime my friend Isikoff and was very sleazy about it. Okay, and that's all? Basically, yeah. He means friends with most of my friends. Like you, you never once Kins- saw him Kinsley, on CNN. And Kinsley, thought, Kinsley, Kinsley was one of the first people to promote his writing. Was he? I mean, he Where, yeah. Did he publish him? Where? Michael in the New Republic. Yeah. Um, but when, back when he was a nobody? When he was a lawyer. He was, yeah, he was always destined for this. But I mean, if Kinsley hadn't published him, somebody else would have. But Kinsley did. Uh, so that's a higher bar, really, than anywhere else he's ever been published. I mean, it is. Um, it is. Uh, anyway, so that's. Uh, and and I, I since learned, you know, he's, he, 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 he's, he's the guy who, when you talk to him, he's always looking over your shoulder for the more important person he's going to ditch you for. I've never met people uh, like that. There are no, they're, they're, he's, they're, they're very rare in Washington. It was like, you know, the aforementioned Ari Melber. I don't remember anything. I saw him at a party like, uh, should I? Yeah, no, fuck it. Like, uh, uh, it's not a big deal, but it, uh, years ago, maybe five years ago, it was a classic high, you know, because he, he used to be on blog. He was on Blogging Heads a few times, and I had been on his show the only time ever from a remote hookup, uh, like only a few months before that. And uh, so he's like, hi. And it was just like immediately, here, talk to my friend. And I wish I could remember who he made a beeline for. He just made a beeline for like by far the highest status person at the party. It was like, so, it was, there was a true celebrity there. And like, I'm like, dude, <laughs> yeah, well, I, I like the friend you're, you've got me talking to, kind of. Well, well, Bob, I ran into him once and he treated you like me. royalty. Mr. Exactly. Kowski, he, he didn't any ditch coffee. me. He didn't ditch me. No, sir. Uh, you, know you know what probably happened? Some people get you mixed up with Jeffrey Tubin, and he may have been one of those. That's people. probably at the. Um, uh, some, anyway, a guy who didn't do that was Michael Tomaski. Turned out he's a nice guy. He is a nice guy. I would and, love and real, to make some amendments to his and, foreign policy, but he's a nice guy. He's and the, nice. Real, the real Washington movers and shakers, the reason we're very skilled, Ditch you and make a beeline for the important person without you even noticing it. Well, Melbourne was to, not near that happen, smooth. They happen to wind up talking to the to the important person, and you don't even know how it happened. Mm-hmm. It seems totally organic. Mm-hmm. Um. So, um. Speaking of the character issue, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I mean, I used back when I was writing for you know twenty years ago, more than that, nineteen eighty four. I was covering the presidential campaign, and I was trying to figure out who uh, to cover. As I was doing the classic journalist thing, I was covering the race and trying to figure out who I wanted and I wanted to go to work for because I was, of course, not a neutral journalist, but I wanted to figure out who I wanted to root for. And I just, is this a Gary Hart, Walter Mondale, John Glenn, 
uh, race. And I decided the guy I liked the best was Fritz Hollings. Right. And it wasn't because I liked his issues that much. He was a, a hawk on defense, which uh, I wasn't, although he, he sort of was vindicated in retrospect. He thought if we put the missiles in Europe, uh, Russia would might collapse. And <laughs> sure enough, it did. You think um, it was because we put missiles in Europe? No, but I think, it helped. I think it helped that we, were, we held the line. Um, the, uh, the, uh, he also was a, a debt fanatic. He was a deficit hawk, and I wasn't a deficit hawk. So you, so, hitched, yeah. your, you hitched your wagon to a star, did you not? I hitched my wagon to a star. How did that work out? The rest is history. Yeah. Uh, he flamed. He did uh, okay. He did, got 5-8% in the New Hampshire primary and dropped out. But uh, the, I thought he had a good character. I thought he, you know, a new issue, the reason to be a character uh, voter as opposed to an issues voter is because you don't really know what the issues of tomorrow are going to be, and you want somebody who, if a new issue comes along, you sort of trust their instincts mm-hmm. more. And a good example would be the Ukraine crisis, okay? We, it's entirely possible that so the character issue, and Mickey says the reason you should vote, the argument for voting on character rather than issues is that you don't know what issues are going to come along. So if you vote on character, then unexpected issues will come along and the person with good character will make better decisions. But there's no such thing as better character, right? Character traits are domain specific. So someone who is honest with his wife may well be dishonest in business. Someone who is friendly and pleasant at uh, synagogue may be you know quite nasty when it comes to politics or, or business there aren't any character traits that are just generalizable some people are outgoing in certain situations and they're shy in other situations right some people are honest in certain <clears throat> certain circumstances and dishonest in other circumstances so the the issue is not voting on issues over character. The issue is there's no such thing as moral character because our character, our, our personality is shaped by the situations we find ourselves in. And there are plenty of situations that will have more effect on your personality than anything inherent to your personality. So just being in church or in synagogue or in some kind of awe-inspiring situation is going to have an effect on you that's greater than any inherent personality traits. Biden will handle the Ukraine crisis really well, okay? And, and you know, you were, one, was, one would be right to maybe choose Biden over Trump on the grounds of character because, you know, Biden, a new crisis, he would handle it better than his opponent, okay? Uh, that's the way I used to think, okay? That's why I held the Monica Lewinsky thing against Clinton because I thought, well, he's, you know, in he, his, his decision-making process is going to be fucked up because he's in hock to his wife and he's a, total, he's a liar about sex, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 that sort of obviously went out with the window with Trump, who was a person of obvious bad character. And I guess I, thinking about it, why has that happened? Why am I no longer a character voter? And a lot of people are no longer character voters, including the voters who may elect Herschel Walker, senator from Georgia. Uh, it's because I think we think we know what the issues are now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not only do we think we know what the issues are now, we think the issues are all important. So we can't really even concede, conceive of another issue more important than, say, uh, immigration uh, that's going to come along where we want somebody, even though we, we didn't see it, we sort of trust their instant judgment. Uh, and I think people on the left feel that they, they can't conceive of an issue more important than autocracy and the future of democracy that have come along. So, you know, if somebody is a bad character, they don't care as long as they're on the right side of this. Okay, the chat says, 40, you need a steel door that uh, marauders would not be able to axe through. You know what's the most effective steel door that you can have? Friends, community, right? The best way to hedge against inflation friends community the best way to make money have friends community the best way to be happy and productive is to have friends and community the best way to reduce your chances of having some kind of disabling addiction or compulsion have friends and community right the best thing you can do for your life for most people is to have friends and community right community friends 
you know, those those tight bonds with other people, tight bonds with with your own family. Those are the best steel doors that you can make for your life to protect yourself to the best extent possible against life's exigencies. You just never know what's coming down the pike. A you know, a 9.0 earthquake could roll through right now. And the best thing that you can do to survive an earthquake is to know your neighbors, is to be on friendly terms with your neighbors, to have friends and community, you know, preferably within walking distance of you. Right? The the strength that you get from being part of a community, from contributing to a community, seeing people who are glad to see you, the the warmth that you get from your Rebbe's smile or from the smile of your your friends and community, that that embrace, that connection, that working in synchronicity towards common goals, that sense of identity, that is the best defense there is when you can create a common reality with other people, right? Just marching, right? Marching in tune, in unison with other people provides a tremendous sense of of strength and, and bonding and courage and energy, right? Anything that you do that gets on the same page with other people and, and creates a shared reality with other people creates energy and it creates a morality, it creates an ethic, it creates an identity. And many of your problems in life are substantially diminished when you have friends and community. So that's the best steel door that you can possibly find. So I want to dedicate this show to Kobe Bryant. This is for you, Kobe. I just finished watching the 10-part series, uh, Legacy, the, the true story of the Los Angeles Lakers. I know that Kobe is looking down at us right now from heaven, and Kobe you know, wants us to do this kind of show and to have these kinds of important conversations that we're having now. This is, this is the best way that we can honor Kobe Bryant. So Legacy, the true story of the LA Lakers, uh, episode five was particularly compelling. It's about the so LA riots. Live now at the courthouse in Simi Valley. For the trial of four policemen continues today in Los Angeles for the charge of beating motorist Rodney King. Well, Pat, everybody is in a state of nervousness just waiting for this decision to come down. It's clear as can be. It's on tape. But they ain't going to jail. That's how I felt. All right, that's uh, Byron Scott, who grew up in central, central, East LA, Central LA downtown LA. And so he thinks the main problem in South Central LA is uh, police violence, right? It's not uh, youths rampaging, raping, murdering, torturing, killing. He thinks the main problem is police violence. I mean, think of the unenviable job that police have dealing with gangbangers and the massive amounts of crime in South Central, right? By, by people that uh, Byron Scott grew up around. And I'm sure a lot of other people in L.A. felt the same way. Not yeah, a lot of other people felt the same way who wanted to blame their problems on some other group, such as the police. Guilty of the crime of assault by force likely to produce great bodily injury and with a deadly weapon. So here we get some stunning, powerful moral commentary from members of the Los Angeles Lakers on the 1991 L.A. riots. We were really taken back by what we saw in the courtroom. This is James Worthy, noted political commentator. He's upset that uh, these Simi Valley cops got away with uh, beating and and black people in this Rodney country. King. 
Oh, yeah, suppressing and hurting black people in this country. So let's look at relative crime rates, right? What are the odds? Do do more unarmed you know, black men get killed by, by cops or do more cops get killed by unarmed black men? You're looking at a team that has, you know, 80%, 85% African-American on it. So all of us probably have gone through some incident with LAPD. Yeah, and that's primarily the fault of your own community. If your own community didn't commit astronomical rates of crime, didn't commit murder at, say, 10 times the white rate, say, 20 times the Asian rate, uh, three times the Latino rate, then you wouldn't be hassled nearly as much by the cops. There was a lot going on off the court that day, but we we had our, our work cut out for us. The team was in the first round of the playoffs. The Lakers trail in this five-game series, two to none. There is no tomorrow if they lose tonight. I remember like it was yesterday, this sort of hubbub building through the forum that shit was going down outside. Departing the forum tonight, go westbound on Manchester or north on Prairie. You know, I'm- Yeah, going down. Stuff is just going down in South Central L.A. because a lot of bad people live and congregate in that area and do horrible things. Right? It's not the police's fault. It's not the white devil's fault. It refers to problems within your own community. I'm in the game thinking of, did I hear what I think I just heard about going a certain direction? Don't go east? So I, I don't think this was Asians, right? It wasn't uh, Japanese Americans. It wasn't Chinese Americans. It wasn't Korean Americans rioting, burning down buildings, and murdering people. We win the game. And they told us that there were rioting going on outside. Yeah, but for, according to Byron Scott, the guy who's speaking there, the main problem in L.A., the one that's got him really upset is the, is the police, right? It's racist police. It's not the horrible behavior within his own community. You know, so you might want to take a different route home. It was crazy. Give us as wide a shot as we can. It's crazy. Wow. Why is it so often that you can predict this amount of craziness by looking at the demographics of a particular city, right? You want to know the murder rate of a city, you just need to know you know, what percentage of that city are composed of people who have an astronomical murder rate. I don't see how we could play a game here with the situation the way it is. It's just too dangerous for people. So what makes for, for dangerous communities? Is there just something inherent about the ground? Or is there just something inherent in certain groups who have astronomical crime rates? Maybe it's on those groups to reduce their murder rate. We had to move to Vegas and play in Vegas against Portland. The best of a bad situation, moving the game from Los Angeles to Las Vegas. Now the Lakers are totally displaced. I don't want to hear anybody say anyone. We're already but at the bottom. We all the game from Los the, Angeles. Uh, the game the Lakers from Lakers rally point together. We'll start all over. There wasn't right. no rich people looting. I promise you that. We already at the bottom. No rich people looting. Yeah, it's no decent people are looting. Bottom. You know what else can we do? You're already at the bottom. Wonder why you're already at the bottom. It's because of behavior like this that you're at the bottom. None but violence. It came to that point where people were just tired of it. Byron Scott. You know, I'm not condoning. Why weren't they just tired of their own community? Why weren't they just tired of the rotten behavior going on by their own community? Any violence whatsoever. But I understood. Right, it's no you know, surprise I feel like to I feel. Byron I'm not going, Scott. You know, sugarcoated. 
I can hear Byron saying, I know how they feel. Yeah, I said it. I meant it. End of the story. And I got some backlash for that. People have a hard time dealing with racial justice in America. Yeah, people do. Because we're only allowed a very limited conversation on this, Mr. USC professor. They don't want to hear an NBA player. They don't want to hear anybody say anything that might be sympathetic to people they are identifying as the rioters. Yeah, people don't want to hear sympathy for murderers, torturers, and rioters. I think we pretty much accepted that's the way it was. You know, you play basketball, stick to basketball. Well, do you have any expertise outside of basketball, Byron Scott? So no wonder he gets comments like, I hope that Mr. Scott learns to handle his tongue as well as he does the ball. Byron Scott was a product of this environment. He had watched police violence happen for years and years and years. Oh, thanks, Snoop Dogg. So Byron Scott grows up in South Central. He'd watched police violence happen for years and years and years. You know what he saw 50 times more than police violence? Violence by members of his own community. And because he made it successfully, he's supposed to turn a blind eye to it? No. Why doesn't he talk to his own community and say, hey, turn down the murder rate? Why doesn't he become an anti-murder activist? Why doesn't he become an anti-rape activist? Why doesn't he become an activist against the sexually transmitted diseases that are rampant among people who are promiscuous and vicious and criminally inclined? He understood how we felt. Because he's one of us, we wanted him. Sometimes you, you get lambasted for telling the truth. Thanks. Thanks, Ice Cube. Must be tough being lambasted for telling the truth. Proof, but... If it's the truth, then you have nothing to be ashamed of. Yeah, the truth is that members of your community, some members of your community, have astronomical rates of committing murder, rape, violence, of getting and transmitting STDs, of being irresponsible fathers. That's the truth. Okay, so later in the episode, we get a much more uplifting story we we get to hear about Jeannie Buss the CEO of the Lakers and she decides in her early 30s to start exploring her own sexuality isn't that beautiful after my divorce I felt such a sense of relief right I mean I think a lot of women after their divorce just feel such a sense of relief that they immediately think oh I want to pose naked for Playboy I was free to pursue the things that I was interested in doing for myself Yeah, she was free to pursue doing the things she was interested in doing for herself, such as posing naked for Playboy. I was over Over 30, 30, comfortable comfortable in who I was, was, in my sexuality, sexuality, being a woman. Being a woman. She wanted to explore her sexuality. And I always admired the women who posed in Playboy. She always admired the women who posed in Playboy. All right, this is the daughter of Jerry Buss, all right, incredibly promiscuous. So I've dated a lot of women who had fathers who were sex addicts. So Jerry Buss seemed very much like a sex addict. Uh, Jeannie Buss grew up in in that environment, and it warped her. I I don't blame Jeannie Buss for for these decisions. I'm just pointing out how ludicrous they sound and how antisocial they are. But she was warped growing up with a father who was a sex addict, just like most of the women I've had relationships with have had fathers who are sex addicts, and it warps them. I admired the magazine. I mean... Why would you admire the women who pose for for Playboy? I knew Hugh Hefner through my dad. Yeah, Hugh Hefner, the serial rapist and sexual predator. Just a horrible, horrible person. 
and I thought I would like to see if I would be considered for the magazine. Right, so Jeannie Buss is not able to sustain relationships, right? She has had a lot of heartbreak, a lot of failure, and understandably being warped, now, growing up, the, the daughter of an out-of-control sex addict. I didn't tell my dad because I didn't want him to call in a favor. How I went through the test photo shoot, and I was accepted. Wow, you must be so proud. So proud to be accepted into Playboy magazine. That's, that's really something to rejoice about. Flon, the million-dollar man to whom mud never sticks, almost whatever he does. Carl Sanderlands is the reigning champion of FM Breakfast Radio with Carl and Jackie O. Last month, he became a dad for the first time, and this morning, his next career move is revealed. That is Seven's Sunrise, thrilled at the news that Kyle is back as a judge on Australian Idol, also on Seven, after 17 years. And less than two hours after that, Seven's The Morning Show was getting even more excited. <laughs> Carl Sandlins joins us from Kiss FM Studios in Sydney where he hangs out every morning. Good day, good to see you. 17 years. So, is this a man we should be welcoming into our lounge rooms for a bit of wholesome viewing? Well, no. If we Wait, wait. Welcoming into our lounge rooms for a bit of wholesome viewing. Have you seen TV? TV, by and large, is a cesspool. I mean, wholesome and TV are opposites, Right. If you want a wholesome life, you want a wholesome living room, you don't turn the TV on. Judged by his outburst on radio last week, in which he unloaded on his colleagues. The spazzes down there, and they can't even write a live read. I'm sick and tired of working here. Everyone's a loser. And also, no, to judge by his recent ugly behaviour, which we were planning to cover in the week of the Queen's death. So strap yourself in for Kyle doing what he does best, being offensive about... Oh, no, being offensive. All right, being offensive, right, there's nothing objective. That's a completely subjective experience. I'm 56 years of age. I have never been offended in my life by anyone's opinion on politics or religion or sex. Monkeypox. The big gay <laughs> disease floating around. Yeah, it is overwhelmingly a disease right now that is primarily affecting gays. But not just gays, gays who go to orgies, right, and have sex with strangers. So Kyle Sanderlands is right. It's only the gays getting it. It's monkeypox. No one wants it. How just long saying. does it take I'd rather to AIDS go? than monkeypox. It's rampant so. through the gay world, Jackie. It's the oh. new AIDS. HIV has infected 84 million people around the world and killed some 40 million. Monkeypox has so. Yeah, and in the Western world, right, AIDS was primarily acquired through unprotected anal sex and using unclean needles, intravenous needles for drugs, right? Two, you know, highly antisocial behaviors. So far infected 136 Australians. And according to the WHO... His so Kyle Sanderlands does a shock jock, you know, music morning zoo radio show, right? He's not an academic. Killed just 27 people globally. But facts like that didn't stop Kyle peddling panic about the dangers of the virus and having contact with members of the gay community. Wait, the news media has been focused on monkeypox. It's in the top five stories over the past three months. So the news media certainly peddling is as much panic as uh, Kyle Sanderlands. If I was a doctor, I'd put a sign up. No monkeypox patients uh, admitted. It's a normal, natural, and possibly even healthy human reaction to want to 
stay away from contagion. Right? Now, certainly that can have an ugly manifestation. It can be counterproductive at times. We don't want to give in to all of our inclinations, but it's not you know, some you know, completely heinous comment that you know, ha- has no basis in, in a healthy perspective on life. Sunderland spread this nonsense for weeks on end. It's not nonsense, right? There's a lot of health in what he's saying, even though it's a comedy show. Right? He's working in a particular genre, comedy, shock jock. He's not a media analyst like our host. And what was the reaction? Well, most of the media chose to ignore it because Kyle Stick is to be crude, rude and offensive. But the City Morning Herald's Andrew Hornery did take aim with this. So this is the gay columnist for the Sydney Morning Herald. Sanderlands left listeners gobsmacked after making a series of sexist, homophobic, crude and lewd comments ranging from group sex acts and hairy-armed old lesos to catching thrush from dirty girls. Okay, I suspect that his listeners were not gobsmacked. I suspect his listeners tune in to hear him make, quote-unquote, sexist, homophobic, crude and lewd comments. That's why they listen to him. Right, they they tune in to hear about group sex acts and hairy armed old lesos and catching thrush from dirty girls and not letting any gays near his newborn son for fear of catching monkeypox. Right? People have always had a fear of contagion. And not letting any gays near his newborn son for fear of catching monkeypox. Hornery said the shock jock had deeply offended the marginalized. Well, maybe marginalized groups should stop participating in antisocial behavior, such as massive orgies with strangers that spread all sorts of nasty diseases, including monkeypox, including AIDS, and other horrible STDs, all right? If your marginalized group is massively, disproportionately participating in antisocial behavior, such as orgies, particularly during a time of pandemic, then you can only expect healthy, normal, natural people to look askance at that antisocial behavior. Groups he claims to have long championed... Look, you can long champion a group and still make criticisms of it, right? It's not like you. we only have you know, emotions that go in one direction. Oh, I just love Jews, I just love blacks, or I just love Christians, right? We, we are complicated people, right? We're, we're allowed a gamut of emotions and reactions. To only have one robotic emotion towards a group is weird and anti-human. Including gay men. And how did Kyle respond to this criticism? With an apology or a back down? Not at all. Instead, he got back on his show and went for the man. He's a joke in the industry. Everyone laughs at him behind his back. No one... He's a dog. He's got the brain syphilis. Charming. But there was more to come. A week later, Tens the Project followed up on Hornery's story by interviewing Bill Botel, the man behind Australia's initial HIV-AIDS response, who criticised Sandilands for his rant. It was uh, a form of hate speech, I think. Ah, a form of hate speech, all right? It's a form of unicorn speech, right? There's no definition of hate speech that would not include the Bible, right? That would not include all sorts of beloved works. If you love something, you're going to hate that which threatens it. Right. Normal people are disgusted and threatened by nasty diseases that are contracted by engaging in gross antisocial behavior such as orgies. And there should be some retraction and we should not uh, go down this terrible path. So how is this not hate speech against Kyle Sanderlands and, and comics? Right? 
this whole concept of hate speech is just you know, purely subjective. It's just another weapon by the left to beat down people with some traditional perspectives. Of demonizing, stigmatizing. and Why not stigmatize people who, in an age of pandemic, are participating in orgies with strangers? Like, why not stigmatize antisocial behavior? Like, normal Australians, normal Americans were stigmatized for not wearing a mask, for not getting vaccinated, for not doing what the elite said they should do with regard to COVID, right? It's great to stigmatize normal people doing healthy things, but God forbid we should stigmatize marginalized groups participating in antisocial orgies. Vilifying people. And guess Are we allowed to vilify behavior, right? In an age of pandemics, are we allowed to vilify participating in mass orgies? So what happened then? Sure enough, next morning, Kyle went for him as well. Listen to me, dog, you dopey professor. Go f There's hate speech. <laughs> a dog and a dope. And why exactly? Because Kyle said his critics had misunderstood him. Rather than stigmatising the virus or gay men, he claimed he was doing everyone a favour. It's clearly me joking, but getting the message out because it is gay men that are getting it. And everyone's so woke and scared of offending anybody, they weren't letting everyone know, hey, shit, this is a real problem, guys. Be careful. Take extra... So, yeah, you can say the S word on, on the radio in, in Australia and on regular telly. Portions. So I did it in my humour. Oh, it's a big gay disease and everything. Excuse me if I don't laugh, or by the line that Kyle is trying to save the world. So how do his bosses at ARN, which owns Kiss FM, justify this behaviour? They told the Herald... Kyle is renowned for his colourful vernacular. We appreciate that those unaccustomed to his expressions may consider the content opinionated and not to everyone's taste. So Kyle brings in about $20 million a year worth of advertising and advertisers are lined up for his show so sometimes advertisers cancel because he offends this or that group and then other advertisers flow in so as long as he can bring in that kind of level of advertising support for his show he'll stay on the air which is corporate spin for he can say what he likes as long as he makes us money and as the herald reported one week later it is a lot Industry estimates have Sanderlands being solely responsible for about $20 million worth of advertising and sponsorship a year to the station. Which is why Kyle is untouchable and why he's back at seven. Let's hope they at least will keep him in check. Oh, yeah, we need to keep people in check. So you see the, the liberal totalitarian impulse always wanting to educate us, always wanting to uh, browbeat us. Right, ever always wanting to knock, you know, traditional views, religious views, folk ways. Want to knock that right out of us to make us uh, more scientific. All right, episode ten of Legacy, the the true story of the Los Angeles Lakers, and we get to hear about how the Lakers responded to George Floyd. I wanted to see the character that we had built. They legitimately. Oh, the character we had built. We got a winning basketball team in, in 2020. The Lakers win the NBA championship. And uh, let's hear about the character that they had built. They have one of the best shots to win yet another title. But when the league was restarting, a lot of players were really affected by what was going on in the world after George Floyd was murdered. Why weren't they upset when thousands of other black people were murdered by black people? Why is it only when a white policeman does it, then you get upset? 
because you don't really care about blacks, you just hate white people. Cities across the United States remain in a state of high tension tonight. So as a result of media lies, elite lies, and uh, Black Lives Matter and other activist groups, we have had a massive increase in crime in this country where communities, marginalized communities of color have paid the biggest price. We've got thousands of more murders taking place in the United States of America, tens of thousands of more robberies, criminal assaults, right, rapes going on, a massive increase in car deaths, driving deaths, pedestrian deaths because of Black Lives Matter, the hysteria over George Floyd and the media and our elites pushing this false narrative that the police are systemically racist against young black men. As the country braces itself for another wave of protests over the death of George Floyd. The unarmed Mr. Floyd, who was black, died in Minneapolis after being pinned to the ground by a white police officer. He was the latest in a string of African-American men to die through police action. Yeah, and uh, that's about 0.1% as many of uh, young African-American men who die because of African-American action, right? Police are a very tiny percentage of those who are killing young black men. Take your knee off my neck! Take your knee off my neck! The murder of George Floyd really underlined something to all Americans that they maybe had tried not to be aware of. Yeah, this is Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Again, he doesn't want to point fingers at his own community. He wants to blame racist police. And now all of a sudden they saw it in a way that they can't deny that it exists. America was really just starting to see who America really was at the end of the day. Black side has been struggling for. Yeah, who America was at the end of the day. Yeah. What America is, is that we have a tiny group in this country, right? A subsection of young black men who commit an astronomical rate of murder, rape, torture, and other antisocial behavior. It's probably the number one problem in this country. For a long time. Like I said, been angry for a long time. Been taking crap for a long time. Been getting disrespected. Right, angry for a long time, but not at his own community. Not at his own group, Right. Not not the people he grew up among who do heinous things. It's that tiny number of outsiders who are doing something to try to control the astronomical amount of crime coming from his community. That's who he's angry at. He's angry at those who are trying to reduce murder. Right? He's angry at anti-murder activists. Back to for a long time. The things that caused those problems have remained unchanged yeah you've got a certain element of young black men who commit astronomical amounts of crime that's the problem what are you going to do about it you know let's keep telling them why we're upset because if you stop everybody's gonna be like "Oof, okay they, they done until something else happens we've seen this over and over and over um in the inner city um, when being, you know, and he's saying we're seeing this over and over and over again, police being racist, right? Like police being racist is not the major problem in the inner city. The major problem in the inner city is the horrible behavior of a certain subset of young black men.
that's the major problem. Racially profiled as a as an African American black man, or this is LeBron James. Well, when your group is committing an astronomical rate of murder and torture and rape, then people outside of your group and people inside of your group would be well served to racially profile, right? And you, if you want to stop that, then stop the astronomical rate of murder, violence, and crime coming from a subset of your group. Or as a, as a black woman. We, we watch someone die on television. Oh, as opposed to all the thousands of people that you could uh, see uh, die because they were murdered by members of their own group, right? That policeman was trying to control a criminal thug who was incredibly powerful, who was hopped up on all sorts of illegal chemicals, all right? Who's, who's had a long history of behaving in a criminal fashion, and he's trying to corral and control someone who's bigger and stronger than he is. We just wanted to support Genie our Buzz. players Great. and what they were standing up for. Yeah, we just want to support our players and what they are standing up for, which is the trashing of the United States of America, which is encouraging an astronomical increase in murder, rape, and violent crime. But let's just encourage their delusions that propel an astronomical increase in violent crime. Sounds like a wonderful thing to do. Bye-bye.